The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, it's another big story roundup episode as Court TV's Michael Ayala joins me to discuss the latest developments in the story of missing mom, Maya Miliette, the discovery of Brian Laundrie's body in a Florida swamp, and the tragic accidental shooting of cinematographer Helena Hutchins by producer and actor Alec Baldwin. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. I'm Vinnie Politan. Thank you so much for downloading the Court TV Podcast. And, and this week, uh, we're going to take a look at a bunch of different stories because there's a lot happening right now on the landscape as we get ready uh, to begin our gavel-to-gavel coverage of two enormous trials uh, that will begin next week. Uh, but uh, that is the, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, the Kenosha shooter, and the trial for the three men accused of murdering Ahmaud Arbery, the jogger down in southeast Georgia. Jury selection going underway, pretrial motions, et cetera. Those cases will begin. But there's three other stories that I want to get to uh, in this podcast. And to help me out, folks, here he is. Here he is, the other guy from the Northeast on Court TV, Michael Ayala. How come you don't have an accent, by the way? Why do you not have an accent? What's funny about that, Vinny, is I actually do. And if the minute I go home and I'm with my family or around my friends, my wife and everybody else comments, where did that accent come from? I just fall right back into it. But, you know, when you get on TV, you got to kind of train yourself not to speak that way. But the minute I step around friends or family, it comes right out. Yeah, I'm trying to integrate it more into my program. So I'm trying to. So we'll see what happens. I think I think Dr. Fauci opened the door for us, Michael, because <laughs> I mean, he, I mean, that accent goes back how many years ago and he can't shake it. So. All right. Anyway, let's get to work here. Uh, there is a story that we, we've been covering on Court TV um, since January, and this is in, involving a, a mom, a mother of three who vanished, who disappeared. And there was. There were searches every weekend by her family, uh, but her husband never took part in the searches. Her husband got a lawyer. Her husband took the three children and kept them away from the mother's family. Uh, That mother's name is Maya Miliette. Her husband is Larry Miliette. And, you know, for nine, ten months almost, um, there was just this missing mom, and now it is is changed dramatically, Michael. It has changed dramatically with Larry Miliette now under arrest for this murder. But Maya still hasn't been found. No, I guess you know the, the family's hoping that perhaps uh, if he is if he if he was involved, that perhaps um, he might do the right thing. Um, but they they were pretty um, initially they they weren't sure if he was going to be involved in it. I think over time, uh, fingers started pointing towards him. His stories didn't make sense. I mean, what he was saying was that she would leave. Not only did she leave her children behind, who the family said she loved very much. She also left behind her phone. Who leaves their house without their phone uh, these days? His story never really added up. And I think you and you covered this on your show for months. You you always said there was something funny about Larry. And, and, and now, you know, it's it's, uh, it's come to fruition. He's been charged with her murder. And, and, and a lot, I was interested to find out all the interesting evidence they found um, uh, that ultimately led to them to, uh, led them to arrest him. And it's really, it, it, for me, it's all about, it's always about the timeline, right? It's the timeline. Like, what were you doing and when were you doing it? And apparently um, the, the morning after they believe she was murdered, he wakes up 6.30 in the morning leaves the two older children at home. And they're not like super old. They're not, you know, not even teenagers, but leaves them home alone, takes the four-year-old with him and is gone for 11 and a half hours without his phone, left his phone. And and the story he's telling now is that he went to the beach. <laughs> 6.30 in the morning. 
6.30 in the morning, you head into the beach for an 11 and a half hour trip with the four-year-old and just leave the other two at home. And by the way, it's you're supposed to be at work. Yeah, I mean, again, the, the stories don't add up. And it's always, Vinny, as we've seen over and over again, it's it's always the stories that end up catching these guys. I mean, they they think they're smarter than the authorities. They're, they're telling stories. They think they got it all figured out. But, you know, in today's day and age with the, you know, GPS and the, um, uh, the, the, the cookies on our on our computers that can tell us what we're searching for, what we're doing, what we're looking at, you know, all the different ways that we can tell where you are with video cameras on every corner. I mean, it's just so difficult to get away with these things. Um, and, you know, you can think you can get away with it. But at the end of the day, once they start digging into all your files and everything about your life, if you are, in fact, lying, it will be fine. It will be found out. Well, you, you mentioned GPS, and this is something that really struck me. They're still investigating the case because they want to find Maya, obviously, for the for the case and for the family. And he didn't take his phone with him, but two and a half hours before he returns home, they know when he returns home, two and a half hours before he returns home, he's plugging in his address into the car. And and to me, wow. So so there's like this two and a half hour radius around his home where they've got to try to figure out that's likely where Maya is. Yeah. Yeah. And then we also have the mystery of her, her missing car, right? Apparently he did something with her car. Um, she had a black Lexus, I believe, um, which also connects him to the crime as well. Um, and they believe, I think they believe, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that, um, he might've buried her somewhere. Um, because again, there's, there's no trace of her anywhere. Um, and so he obviously had some plan to get rid of the body. Um, the only one, uh, the only thing they can hope is that they appeal to his, his, his better angels. And, you know, you have these children now, and that's, this is the real tragedy here, Vinny, you know, you, you have children now without a mother and very soon to be without a father. Um, and it's really a shame. The only saving grace here is that there seems to be a very loving family surrounding these kids who are going to be right there to help them get through all this. So, um, you know, there are just no winners here on any level. No, not at all. Now, the other thing that surprised me, you know, little by little, we were learning facts about Larry Miliette, and he's a, a bit of a, 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 a gun guy. Right. And, and I spoke with Maya's sister and the whole family, they would go out to ranges and, and shoot, um, et cetera. But then it seems that investigators believe that she was shot and killed inside the home. And, and they referenced some surveillance video from neighbors. One video where you allegedly hear, I think it's seven or eight gunshots. Eight around, shots. Yeah. Eight shots at around 10, just before 10 o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And then 1030 that same night, neighbors say they hear the kids playing in the backyard. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I are fathers, right? I mean, 1030 at night, the kids aren't in the backyard playing. Right. Not in any normal household. That is that is strange. That is bizarre. And the and and the picture it paints for me is there's something going on inside that he wants to keep the kids away from. And this is after after those eight shots. Yeah, what it is, Vinny, is very strong circumstantial evidence, something we're going to hear, obviously, in court when this trial does uh, come come about, if, in fact, it does come about, if he doesn't plead out on this thing. Um, but that's exactly what it is. It's all odd behavior. All of it's odd behavior. Then the very next morning, he's out at 630 in the morning. You can, you can only imagine what he's doing at that point, right? And again, he's trying to keep the children separate from what's going on inside the house. And then he takes the four-year-old to do whatever deed he's going to do that next morning, because the four-year-old probably is not going to be in a position to fully understand what's going on. The older ones, possibly, so he leaves them behind. Um, and certainly, as you mentioned, uh, probably a little too young to leave up, leave behind alone. Um, so all of these odd behaviors are just pointing in one direction. Um, and now that they have it all, um, he, he's in he's in big time trouble. Now you mentioned a plea. Now California, even though the governor has put a moratorium on it, the 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 law of the state of California is death penalty it's, it's it's a death penalty case a state so they can seek the death penalty and i'm wondering if maybe that becomes the bargaining chip here seen it in other cases uh, i don't know how much leverage that has these days because california is very close to seemingly eliminating the death penalty but um to me that's the only way he 
potentially would plead guilty because what I see in a lot of these cases, Michael, is that when you have um, a spousal murder and there are children involved, the killing spouse never, never will acknowledge publicly on the record that they did it. Never. There could be a pile of DNA. They'll never do it. So uh, in this scenario, do you see him admitting it, knowing that those kids are then going to find out that, oh, yeah, dad killed mom? Yeah, I agree with you 100 percent. I mean, again, the only way and the only reason why I even think it would be on the table is because it is, in fact, the death penalty state. And often, like you said, prosecutors will put the death penalty out there, float it out and in hopes that the defense will then accept a plea or negotiate a plea to get that off the table so that at the very least um, you have a defendant who has to decide, is it better that I'm not around at all or better that my children know that I might have done something and I can always, you know, make up a story for them to try to make it seem like I did this so that I wouldn't be killed by the state. Um, So there's a lot of ways it can go. Um, I don't see them going for the death penalty in this case. And if I was a defense attorney representing Larry Moyete, I would not take a plea in this case. Once again, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence. There is no body. And, you know, we've seen lots of cases recently here on Court TV, Vinny, uh, and throughout the years where uh, the fact that there's no body is not... um, something that can you know stand in the way of a, of a of a guilty verdict but at the end of the day it does make the prosecution's uh a job a little bit harder um so certainly i think with this type of case while there's a lot of interesting parts that come together and they're odd and they make you think twice and make you understand why larry Milliette was the guy they pointed the finger at if I'm a defense attorney, I'm looking at some of that evidence saying, hmm, maybe I can work with some of this and uh, convince a jury, maybe one or two jurors, uh, that my guy didn't do it. And this circumstantial evidence doesn't necessarily add up to murder. All right. We will continue to track this case, the uh, preliminary hearing scheduled for uh, early next year. And that's where we'll get our first look at the the evidence in the case uh, on the record in a courtroom sworn testimony. Now, want to switch gears, go to another huge story that we've been covering that seems to be wrapping up officially, but I don't think we'll ever wrap up in terms of the, the true crime sleuths and, and folks on the, on the World Wide Web and Internet and everywhere else who talk about true crime cases. I'm talking about Brian Laundrie and the death of Gabby Petito and uh, a lot of people questioning so many things in this case, but let's get to where we are, which is... Brian Laundrie's remains positively identified through dental records, right? So he's found dead in the reserve where the parents said he went all along. So at, at this point of the case, do you see any criminal investigation or potential liability for whoever's left. And when I say whoever's left, it's really Chris and Roberta, uh, Brian Laundry's parents, who have been really the focus of a lot of the anger coming from the public because they've actually, they're actually there, right? They, they come in and out of their home, whereas Brian Laundry has really never been seen other than on those videos. I don't think we ever saw him uh, after uh, the death of Gabby Petito. He, he was with his family. Some people may have seen him, but I never saw him. Uh, I don't, I, I, you know, I never saw him walk in and out of the house, any of that. He just sort of disappeared and uh, ultimately was found dead in, in the swamp. Yeah, this is a tough one, Vinny. You know, on, on one level, and I'll get a little deeper to, into this in a minute, I think the family is getting a bad rap here. Um, uh, I think a lot of it is going to hinge on the conversations that they had with authorities. I think there might be an obstruction of justice type charge out there somewhere if they lied and it can be proven that they lied to authorities. Uh, but when I look at this case and I look at who's involved, uh, particularly Brian Laundry. We, we saw him on tape, Vinny. He seemed like a very practiced and um, skilled liar. And there's no reason to believe that he didn't lie to his parents as well. I mean, people say, well, he came home with her van and blah, blah, blah. He could have told them a story that, oh, I dropped her off at some friends' houses and I'm, you know, I'm going to pick her up again. I'm on my way out to get her, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, he could have easily lied to his, his own family. We all have, you know, those of us who have children know we all want to think the best of our children. You know, if he's telling me that I'm not, why would I think in any way that this was actually a cover up for a murder? Um, So there's that 
um, as far as they them knowing where he went, I think he probably just told them he was going off and then he was going to pick her up at some point or meet up with her at some point. I'm not sure they knew where he was going. Um, and as far as that last day, Vinny, where they show up on the day they find the remains, I think they're getting a bad rap with that too. I think what happened was if I, you know, sort of digging into all the details here was that particular area um, was a place that he liked to frequent. I think they told them that, but they couldn't access it because it was underwater. And once the water receded, the police probably told um, Chris and Roberta that it had receded and they were going now to that area. And they said, OK, let, I'll join you over there because we know that's an area he likes to go to. And, and hey, there there was the body underwater in a place that he was uh, that he liked to frequent. So, you know, I mean, it looks bad. They're easy to dislike because they're the only ones there. But uh, I, and I, you know, we, again, we've seen these type of this type of thing before, Vinny, and I'm not sure authorities want to compound their loss now with with charges unless it was really, um, you know, out and out lies trying to, uh, you know, give Brian an opportunity to get away or something really nefarious along that line. But I, I don't see charges. I really don't. And I think they're getting a bad rap. And and on that point, it seems they were the ones who said Carlton Reserve. They're the ones who said, and that's where he's ultimately found. So I don't see any factual obstruction there. Um, the place, though, where I am not convinced that they acted appropriately was early on. And, and, and again, Brian Laundrie may very well have lied to, to his parents about why Gabby wasn't in her van when they returned. He may have said, we had a fight. She went uh, to her parents' place, whatever. But it, what, what I want to know, and to me the most important question is, when did they get the information that prompted them to get the lawyer? Because that's when things are bad, okay? That's when they know things are bad. There's, there's no way around it. You're not getting a lawyer if you think that, oh, you're going through a breakup with your fiancé. You don't need a lawyer for that. You just don't. What you need a lawyer for is when something has happened to her. So I, my common sense tells me at some point they learned this. And I don't know if it was when he showed up on the first, when they went on their camping trip, or what I believe probably most likely, if he lied initially about it, is when Gabby's family started calling. Yeah, which is I, on the I, 10th. I don't think that that was it, Vinny, because I think uh, you have to remember, you know, a lot of times now when, you know, when a case like this starts getting all of this attention, you know, you got to put yourself in the shoes of Roberta, right, and, and Chris, and know, you know, this is a situation, you know, 99.9% of, of the population is not used to dealing with. Suddenly they're getting all this attention. Not only are they getting attention, but it's all negative attention. And people are accusing their son of something very serious. Um, they begin to see the videos on television. The family starts calling. Uh, all this is going on. Um, I will say uh, their reaction seemed a bit callous, considering it was a fiance situation. She was, in fact, in their house or I believe living in their house at some point, you would think they would have more care. So there is certainly room for suspicion. Um, but I think getting a lawyer can, you know, it doesn't necessarily have a sinister connotation. It could just be that with all the uh, all the different pressures coming down on them, they felt they needed some help to deal with all that was happening, all that was coming their way. And then, you know, once it became clear that something really bad happened here, um, they certainly needed someone to be a buffer between them, the public and the media. Well, I think. The, the real place where all the anger comes from, and I think rightfully so, is that once you find out something is terribly wrong, yes, you can get the lawyer to protect your son. That, that's, that's fine. Um, but how about your role now? What's, what, do, you, do you have some sort of ethical, moral obligation to pick up the phone and speak to Gabby's parents, as difficult as it is, to let them know that their child was left out there is probably being eaten by animals and 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 bugs and who knows what's going on and and to me that's the that's the travesty of it all and and the unknown for those parents to torture them uh, for that week 
where they are searching for their daughter. They have no idea what's going on, and they're getting just radio silence from the parents. Now, if the parents did nothing wrong, they could pick up the phone and talk to Gabby's parents and say whatever they need to say, parent to parent, and, and let them know the, the situation. And you can protect your child's rights by getting the lawyer. But if you take any step beyond that, then I feel like you're getting real close to crossing that line. You know, if, if in fact, you know, something terrible has happened and, and whether it's a legal problem, uh, I'm with you, probably not. I don't think we're going to see criminal charges against them, but to me, it's more of a, a moral ethical issue as, as a parent, you know, I finished my show saying, don't forget to hug the kids, your kids, but, but collectively as the grownups, we have to take care of all the kids and, 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 and you, well, your kids aren't as old, but, um, you know, when the kids are 20, 25, they're still your kids. You know, I got an 18 year old and trust me, I can put myself in the shoes of those guys. Um, you know, at the end of the day though, I, I think part of the problem here was, I think, I think Roberta and, uh, Chris got bad advice from the beginning. I think this attorney was giving them bad advice. I think every step of the way, this guy was tone deaf and he needed to, he needed to be, um, and he needed not to be tone deaf and he needed to understand what needed to be done to protect not only Brian, but also to protect the reputation of the family themselves. And I don't think he did that very well. I think he was much too, you know, hard. And because I, I bet you, Chris and Roberta would tell you, Vinny, if you interviewed them, that they didn't call them and didn't do anything because they were told not to. Not to. Yep. You know, Absolutely. And I think they got bad advice from the beginning. So, again, that doesn't absolve them from it. But at the end of the day, uh, I think that certainly played a role. Very short-sighted. All right, Michael Ayala, stand with us. When we come back, we're going to talk about the story everyone's talking about, which is uh, the tragedy on the set of the movie Rust in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Alec Baldwin shooting and killing uh, cinematographer Helena Hutchins. Um, the latest in that investigation and where that could potentially end up in a criminal courtroom. Next. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV and go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. So as I look at this story of Alec Baldwin shooting and killing Helena Hutchins on the movie set. It, it brings me back to a question that we deal with a lot at court TV. When is an accident a crime? When is something that you, like murder, we understand that's always a crime, right? Cause you intended, you planned it, you plotted it. But when does behavior that is not intended, you're not intending the result. When does that uh, become a crime? Now, when you talk about liability, civil liability, you know, we have a civil system of justice and a criminal system of justice. The civil system is about righting wrongs, usually through monetary damages. That is a, a no-brainer in this case. I mean, Elena Hutchins should be alive. People messed up. They didn't do their jobs. Everyone's going to get sued, and, and they're all liable for it. Uh, but in the, in the criminal context, that's where I want to focus uh, the discussion. Uh, Michael, what do you think about that general question? When does an accident become a crime? I think it has to do with whether the actions that were taking, uh, taken around the act and, and around the, the incident are, are reasonable. I think it becomes a question of reasonableness. And we're going to have to really dig in to know what the protocols were on the set, if the protocols were followed. Um, and if a person was reasonable in following those protocols and... Um, then I think you, you're shielded as far as Alec Baldwin. Let's talk about him initially. But I think Alec has, has a little bit of a problem because when you talk about reasonableness, just the, by virtue of the fact that someone was shot with, by a gun with a live round in it suggests that someone was doing something unreasonable. Some protocols weren't followed, right? And if you look at those, that reasonableness and if you look at those protocols and you say to yourself, if those aren't followed, is it foreseeable that a gun with a live round in it could shoot someone? Then you found yourself in a very difficult position and possible facing some sort of criminal negligence charge. Um, so he's he's in trouble because there is under no circumstances when you have a gun in your hand, should someone be shot? Because the protocols are very clear as to you have to treat every gun you have as a gun that's loaded. 
right? And clearly that didn't happen here. It wasn't checked, obviously, and he didn't treat the gun as if it was loaded. Um, no one did. No one should have been close to him. No one should have been within shooting range. He should have checked it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a, a checklist that they go down. Clearly it wasn't followed. So I, I'd be worried if I were him that without following those protocols, which can be you know very clear, um, this event was foreseeable. And if it's foreseeable, he could face criminal negligence charges. But I can tell you this, Benny, in the history of movies, there's really only been one director slash producer charged with a form of criminal negligence. And uh, they were found not guilty. Um, and so I'm, I'm not sure how it would all play out. But I think Alec Baldwin has something to worry about here. Two things. I think the, 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 the society we're living in now, I think, is leaning much more towards criminal responsibility yes. for actions in, in many different situations. So I think the, the pendulum is swinging that way right now. And, and I think that would um, push this closer to getting into a criminal court. Here's what I'm wondering, because, um, you know, listening to the, the sheriff in his press conference with the DA and the DA still trying to figure things out, right? Saying this is a complex case. Part of uh, the, the sheriff said there was a lot of complacency was evident on the set. And I think that's self-evident. There had to be complacency for this to happen in the first place. But the sheriff is investigating um, whether or not crew members uh, that morning were out plinking, using these the, the gun for target practice, for recreational purposes. And that could be how the live round ended up in there. The sheriff is investigating allegations that there was a lot of drinking the night before. And the sheriff is also investigating um, whether or not there was a prior incident on the same set where someone was handed a gun and told it was cold. And the stunt uh, person who had the gun fired it and it was a live round. So, um, the sheriff also investigating 500 live rounds that were found on the set, which included blanks and dummies, but suspected actual live bullets as well. I mean, I, I mix that all together, and this sounds like what was going on on the set of this Western? A recipe for disaster, Vinny, a recipe for disaster. That's what was going on there. That's exactly right. And, you know, the lead armorer, the person who sort of handles all of the prop guns and things of that nature, was new to the job. Not not new to, to being an armorer, but new to being a lead armorer. Um, and, and, and was admittedly nervous with that job at this point. Um, so just a number of things. This was, again, a non-union crew. Uh, there were crew problems on the set. They were talking about well, the hours were too long. They had actually walked off the set at some point. So this this whole entire set was almost set up for some sort of problem. And and all the things that you mentioned, I think, would all go into a pot where if a DA looks at this case, this could potentially lead to some criminal charges because these are folks who are clearly um, doing things that are against protocols. One of the things that came out of that criminal case uh, years ago, and this, this was in the 80s, um, were new protocols to make sure that these sets were safe, right? And I think you're exactly right. As time has gone by, we as a society look more towards criminal courts in situations like this. I think years back, when I talk about the fact that only one producer director has faced criminal charges, I think when you start looking forward now and where we are now as a society, I mean, I think now now it's much more likely um, that someone who is acting in a way that is as irresponsible as some of the things that we're hearing happened on that set. Um, I think it's much more likely that someone will end up facing criminal charges. What's interesting from that um, press conference you talked about was that one of the things they're doing is they're looking at the casings and they're going to try to see what, what fingerprints they can find on the spent casings. And that'll tell us a lot. That will tell us a lot. Who touched that casing? And there may be still a lot more of this story to be told. Absolutely. And if they're out plinking, shooting shoot, you know, target practice, who was there? Who knew about it? And, and why would you even do that, by the way? Why would you even do that? Because I I, apparently the sheriff was a little upset. I guess the sheriff believes that's probably pretty illegal, too, just going out and doing random shooting practice out in the desert. Um, the other thing the sheriff talked about is that there were there were three guns that they they confiscated. One of them was like a like a complete dummy gun. It was like a rubber gun or whatever. The other one was was not operational. And the the third, which is the one that Alec Baldwin had, is the one that fired the live round. It was one bullet that went through 
Elena Hutchins and then hit the director and was actually retrieved from the, the director's shoulder, Joel Souza. This is a rehearsal where all this happened. There's no video of this. There's no film of this. They were not filming a scene. They were blocking and rehearsing a scene. Why on earth would you hand a real gun if you have like a rubber gun or even just using your fingers like uh, for a rehearsal to block a rehearsal? Why? It's, to me, that is that is part of the uh, negligence here. And, and, and to me, whoever was in charge of inspecting the gun, which would be the armor, I think absolutely um, it, it falls under the purview of, of, of what our laws should include for criminal negligence. The assistant director who handed the gun to Alec Baldwin, and then Alec Baldwin, I think of the three, uh, I agree with you that it's it's not a close case. It's not he's not off scot free here. I think he's more a little more in the gray area, but clearly, I think the first two have a huge problem in in all of this. But why would they not just use the the rubber gun? And why wouldn't Alec Baldwin, as the actor, say, "What are you giving me this gun for? Just give me the rubber gun." I mean, I, I can go even step further, Vinny. I mean, you 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 see what's going on in movies today. They can do anything. They can do anything, Vinny. We put William Shatner uh, out in space. I mean, we can do anything, and we can't come up with a realistic-looking fake gun that looks real on camera without actually using a real gun that shoots live rounds, so that people's lives aren't in danger on these sets. I don't get it. I honestly don't get it. Why is it even necessary to have a real gun and live rounds on a set? Why? Why? Why aren't dummy bullets fine? Why, why isn't there a gun that somebody's created that can give you the exact same feel, sound, and look of shooting a real gun without putting lives in danger? It's, it's beyond me. As I said, we can put William Shatner into space at the age of 90, you know, and it's like we can't come up with the technology, simple technology. It just it, it blows my mind that people's lives are still at risk on these sets. It makes no sense. And I understand it's an independent film. I understand the budget is low, but still. Hey, let me let me tell you. Let me tell you, Michael. A low-budget film with Alec Baldwin compared to, you know, how we produce TV and, and, and shows day in and day out. Come on. Low-budget's low, low budget's all relative. It's all relative. And, and this is the part that really, that really uh, shocks me is that they were out doing this target practice, allegedly. It's being investigated. If that's true, that they're using this gun for target practice, how could you not give that gun a second and a third look? knowing that that same day it was being used, live rounds were being used in that gun. How could you hand that uh, to Alec Baldwin? How could you put it on the cart? How could you even come back from plinking without emptying it out in the plink field where you were? I don't understand this. I'm using the word plink a lot. It's a new word. I just learned, Michael. I never knew this existed, but I'm not a gun guy. I'm not a gun, and I say this on the air all the time. The only thing I know about guns is is what I have learned in covering trials and and being an assistant prosecutor. I don't shoot guns. I don't own a gun. I don't carry a gun. I'm not anti-gun. It's just I'm scared of them, Michael. I'll be honest. I'm scared of them. I agree. I agree 100%. I'm not a gun guy for the very same reason. Um, I have a lot of friends who are getting into guns right now, but it's not something I have any interest in at all for the very same reason. Uh, I don't see them as safe. I don't care what kind of safeguards you put in place. I mean, we know the statistics. More people get killed with their own gun than somebody else's gun. I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons to have one. I'm just not one of those people, but I agree with you. And, and you mentioned the fact that there might have been some partying going on on the set. That could explain why there were these loose safeguards, right? Uh, you're out there. Part of the reason why you're out there doing something as ridiculous as having target practice out in the desert is because you're having a little party, right? And again, I, we don't know this to be true. Uh, I want to reiterate the fact that these are allegations. They are being investigated. Of course, we'll continue to follow what comes of that. But that's one way this could happen. That, you know, you, 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 your guard goes down because you're having a few drinks, you're having fun, you're doing that, this, that, and the other thing. And, and suddenly you forget that there's a live round left. You, you, you put six in, you shoot five, you forget. And now there's one left in the gun. So, you know, it's just there's, there's a lot, lot to know here. And again, if, in fact, they're able to find some fingerprints, they sent it to the FBI lab, by the way, which is the best equipment in the world, right, um, to figure out if there's any prints on there, that, that will tell us a lot. And what's interesting, you know, what makes it, the whole premise, you know, the accident becoming a crime and, and the accident being criminally investigated, 
is the reaction of the people who are being investigated. We're being told everyone's cooperating, right? And, and criminal defense attorneys, you know, we, we just talked about the laundry case, you know, say nothing, say nothing, say nothing. They always say, say nothing. What are your thoughts about when you're in a situation like this? Like there's the, there's the public relations part of it for Alec Baldwin, obviously, um, not as much for the armorer or the assistant director, both of whom will never work again in the industry. They're done. They need new careers. No one is ever hiring them again to do this. Um, so what, do, what are your thoughts about them cooperating? Is, 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 let's just look at how this thing develops. Is that the best way to, um, to, to, to a, a address all of this in, in terms of the legal aspect, you know, from, from, the, from the defense attorney's perspective is the best way to try to make yeah, exactly it- Vinny. I'm offended. I'm a little offended because as you know, I come from a defense attorney bent, right? And the first thing I'm telling everybody is please do not talk to anyone, right? We've got to figure this out. We cannot just give statements. Those things never turn out to be in your favor. Police have time-honored ways of using your statements against you, finding ways to make inconsistencies in your statements, not because you want to be dishonest, but you need representation when you go and speak. I would encourage them to cooperate, but you need to cooperate with representation, right? So you can be have someone who's skilled in understanding the different ways that police go about doing the things that they do. And what you can see is, you know, Alec Baldwin has been relatively silent in this situation. He put out a couple of very um, well-worded tweets, um, which I thought were perfect. And that, again, I promise you, was crafted by either some reputation management folks or and or an attorney and a very well-paid attorney, because, again, it hit all the right notes. Uh, he talked about how sorry he was. He talked about wanting to help in any way he can. He talked about being in touch with the family of the victims, making sure that everything's okay with them. And he's doing everything he can to make sure they're okay. Just hit all the right notes. And that shows you he's getting good representation. I promise you, he did not come up with that tweet on his own. So yes, um, I clearly would want to advise folks to cooperate, but don't do it on your own. Get yourself some representation. And how do you, how do you see this playing out? If, if there are criminal charges in this case, we're in sort of the gray area. Anytime you're talking about an accident being charged as a crime, I, th- I always think we're in the gray area where, you know, it's a case that could potentially be winnable. What do you think happens here? Let's, let's start first with Alec Baldwin. You know, if, if Alec Baldwin got charged criminally, do you think he would say, no, I'm an innocent man and go into court and um, attempt to convince a jury that he's not guilty? Or do you think he would look at it and say, all right, I'll just admit whatever they're charging me with and try to mitigate the damage and, and take that road? How do you think he would react? Someone of his, someone of his stature in, in a case like this. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and you, you said the key words there, someone of his stature. I don't think someone of his stature is interested in taking criminal responsibility for what happened. I think he's taken somewhat of a moral stance and an ethical stance. And we talked about that earlier in the laundry case. You know, that's, that's important as well in terms of public opinion. And that's, as we know, important, especially in the business that Alec Baldwin is in. So he's taken responsibility there. And I think that's where he, I think he believes his responsibility Responsibility lies. I think beyond that, um, if you uh, if prosecutors tried to charge him with a crime, I think he would fight it vigorously, and I think he would again handle it in a way such that he would make clear that he's not saying what happened was right or that someone else has responsibility, but he would make clear that what he's fighting is criminal responsibility. He was not a criminal. This was a horrible, horrible accident. Take responsibility for that, whatever that means, financially, you know, morally, ethically. But as far as criminally, I think he would fight that very much, though, because I don't think he believes that he acted in any criminal way. Um, and, and there's a question to that. But, you know, again, the facts line up in a certain way. And then we talked about it, you know, how he handled the gun, following protocols, foreseeability, reasonableness. All those things are going to come into play. But I, I, I can't see him just accepting criminal responsibility. And, and how about his role? I mean, he wasn't just the lead actor. He's also a producer of the, of the film. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So if he's if he's at that level. Can he then somehow be held criminally responsible based upon the totality of the circumstances of what's going on in that set? 
if there if in fact it turns out there was another gun that was given to someone as a cold gun that was actually a hot gun with a live round in it and that had just happened um that that he knew that the the staff had gone out plinking uh just before rehearsals if he has knowledge of what's taking place on his set where and and let's be honest i mean he was he had to have been in charge of the whole thing i don't care if there's someone else there that may have on paper a title that's greater than his in, in, in how this movie's being filmed and everything. He's the superstar. He's the A-lister. He's the producer. He's the lead actor. He's Alec Baldwin. Um, anything he says, basically, I, I would think would, would be the law on that movie set. Yeah, absolutely. But I think you're, you're imparting uh, knowledge to him that may not necessarily be the case for a producer slash star. Um, the other case um, involved uh, John Landis, um, who is a well-known producer, produced the Blues Brothers, a couple of other movies, a lot of other movies, actually. He was producing The Twilight Zone. He was the director producer. Directors tend to have more control over the daily sort of happenings on set. But there are some 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 technical legal terms that I'll throw at you, and one of them would be superseding cause, right? You can have some control over what's going on or have responsibility for what's going on. And I certainly think he would be responsible in a civil suit. But criminally, I think if we're talking about, let's say, some of these acts we were talked about earlier, where folks went out, had a few drinks, were shooting and then left a, a round in the gun or put a round in the gun and mistakenly or maybe even intentionally put it on the cart um, as a joke of some sort. Who knows? Um, those would be sufficiently superseding events that I think would insulate him from criminal liability, criminal knowledge in terms of that. So I don't think in terms of what the actions of others on the set are, he would face criminal charges, but certainly, certainly they would open him up to some sort of uh, civil, if in fact, and I'm sure this case will find its way to civil court, um, he may find himself uh, on the receiving end of that. Michael Ayala, Court TV anchor. You can watch him every night from 6 to 8 o'clock. Yeah, he gets he does the two hour show. Everybody else on the network does three hours. I've got to talk to yeah, his agent. I, I tee it up for you. All I'm doing is teeing uh, it up for you, man. I'm just setting people up, getting them ready for closing arguments with Vinny Politan. Right. You're the man. Thanks so much, Michael. Appreciate it. You're welcome, man. Pleasure to be with you. All right. When we come back, I want to talk about what I talked about at the beginning. We are right here, um, one week away from Two enormous trials that look like they are going to happen at the same exact time. I'm going to talk about the Ahmad Arbery murder and the Kyle Rittenhouse murder trial as well. Don't go away. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. So we are about to begin two enormous trials on Court TV. Super high profile, uh, important cases as well for many different reasons. But it looks like they're going to happen at the same time. And one of them is down in southeast Georgia. This is the case involving Ahmad Arbery, who was running through a, a South Georgia neighborhood, was followed by three men in two pickup trucks, ends up getting shot and killed. Uh, two of the men had guns. Um, the third had a cell phone and recorded it on video. And apparently there's more video than what we've seen publicly of what was happening that day that we will see during the trial. So that case, the defense is um, relying upon self-defense, self-defense and citizens arrest. They're using citizens arrest saying that Ahmad Arbery had been seen uh, I think four prior times on video walking through a house that's under construction in the neighborhood. And the owner of that house, according to the defense, had claimed that $2,500 worth of something had been stolen from the house. Now, it wasn't clear if it was stolen by Ahmad Arbery, but what was clear to the folks in the neighborhood is that Ahmad Arbery, uh, they didn't know his name at the time, uh, was the one that was walking through there. And uh, in the middle of the day, they see him running through the neighborhood and 
uh, one of the McMichaels, the father, sees Ahmad Arbery and recognizes him from the video. So he tells his son, grab your gun, and they chase him in their pickup truck. And as they're chasing him through the neighborhood, another neighbor who doesn't really know the McMichaels that well, or at all, I think, I think he knows that they're in their neighbors, sees his neighbors uh, chasing uh, Ahmad Arbery through the neighborhood. So he gets in on the chase. Uh, but he doesn't have a gun. He has this the cell phone and records the whole thing, all three being charged with felony murder. Uh, so the, the defense is saying that they were trying to effectuate a citizen's arrest. They were trying to detain him on the suspicion of committing the felony at the house that was under construction and waiting for police. Um, one of the McMichaels, Greg, who was on the back of the pickup truck because the passenger seat had a baby's seat in it and they didn't have time to move it. So he's in the back of the pickup. Looks really bad uh, for the defense. Is also on the on the phone with police at the time of the shooting. So that's their their partial defense is citizen's arrest. And, and Georgia had a citizen's arrest law at the time. And they're also claiming self-defense at the moment of the shooting, that it was Ahmaud Arbery who approached uh, Travis McMichael, who had a shotgun, approached him and attempted to take the gun away from him. And that's when the gun goes off or Travis McMichael fires the gun. We'll see the way uh, the evidence plays out um, and what the jury finds and, and what the evidence is, what the testimony is about that. So that's a self-defense case. The other big trial that we're covering is the one out of Kenosha, Wisconsin, involving Kyle Rittenhouse, 17-year-old, who in the middle of the Kenosha riots, which happened after the shooting of Jacob Blake, uh, Jacob Blake was the guy, was, it was a viral video, Jacob Blake was, um, police were trying to arrest him, he was fighting with police, fighting with three of them, uh, and then walks away from police and, and has a knife in his hand as he's leaning into his car that has two children in the back seat, is shot by police. No charges against police for that, no charges against Jacob Blake uh, for fighting with police and, and for possession of that knife. But that viral video led to the riots in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And during the riots, Kyle Rittenhouse, 17 years old, uh, travels. Uh, he lives just over the border of Wisconsin and Illinois, travels. His mom actually drives him into Kenosha. He gets there. He's spending time with a friend of his. Uh, his friend gets a gun for him, and it's an AR-15. And, and he's um, then takes part with a bunch of other folks who are walking around Kenosha, uh, uh, purportedly um, protecting some local businesses because Kyle Rittenhouse's friend apparently worked at one of the businesses and the old boss asked if he could watch it because there were businesses that were being torched and, and, and burned down. But during the course of all this, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse gets into an altercation with a man named Joseph Rosenbaum, who, um, according to the defense, is, is reaching for Kyle Rittenhouse's gun as another gun is fired uh, just behind uh, Kyle Rittenhouse. And, and Kyle Rittenhouse is, is exercising self-defense when he shot Joseph Rosenbaum. Then after he shoots Rosenbaum, he's walking towards police, gets chased by a crowd, gets knocked to the ground. Um, Anthony Huber uh, hits him in the head with a skateboard. And as that's happening, Kyle Rittenhouse shoots and kills Anthony Huber. Uh, then Gage Grosskreutz, uh, turns and has a handgun pointed at Kyle Rittenhouse. When Kyle Rittenhouse shoots him, doesn't kill him, but wounds him, he survives, he'll testify. So the argument for Kyle Rittenhouse, as the argument for the three men down in South Georgia, is self-defense. So we've got these two super high-profile cases, both involving self-defense defenses. So it's not in question who did it, the question is, what is it? And why did they do it? And that's what the jury will have to figure out. These are not easy questions. These are not easy questions. I think it's much more difficult for prosecutors in Wisconsin uh, because there's videos of, of the second and third shooting, and you can see uh, what's happening with Kyle Rittenhouse there. I think he has a, a much stronger argument for self-defense based on that video. The video in, in Georgia of the man who's holding the gun that is fired and kills Ahmad Arbery, it's not as clear because the initial confrontation between Travis McMichael and Ahmad Arbery is obscured by the truck. It happens in front of the pickup truck. So you don't actually see. What you do see are the shadows underneath, and it does seem clear that Ahmad Arbery, as he as he's jogging and rounds the truck, which is trying to block him in, um, as he rounds the front of the truck, he 
seems to approach Travis McMichael, and Travis McMichael at some point is going backwards. Um, but the question is, was Travis McMichael pointing his gun at Ahmaud Arbery as he rounded that pickup truck? That's not clear. You can't tell. And that's a big fact in the case. So um, there, the self-defense will be much more difficult based upon the totality of the circumstances and the specific what you see on the video. So as these two trials play out, Court TV, of course, will be covering, and you're, you're not going to miss any of the big moments in either one of them. Uh, we're on all day long. So we'll be able to bring them to you, and I'll be talking about all these big moments every day on my show from 8 to 11. But keep in mind that in both of these cases, um, who did it is not in question. It's a different kind of trial. It's a when are you allowed to use deadly force? And this is always a tough question for jurors. It's, it's, it's a difficult case for prosecutors. It is because they're not saying, they're not conceding that a crime was committed. And as a matter of fact, in the Wisconsin case, the three people who, the two people who were shot and killed, the third who was shot and survived, cannot be referred to by the prosecution as victims. That's a ruling by the judge. Cannot be referred to as victims. And, and legally, the, the judge is right. Because there is no concession that a crime has even been, been committed. If, if the jury believes self-defense, then the victim is Kyle Rittenhouse. The defendant ends up being the victim. So... Two big, fascinating cases. Get ready. Fasten your seatbelts. Get ready to watch from 9 o'clock in the morning all the way through 11 o'clock at night uh, as I take a look at all the big moments day in and day out. Two big trials uh, all happening simultaneously on your front row seat to justice. Now, to watch them, you got to get Court TV. You know, you go to uh, CourtTV.com. You can figure out how to watch. We're on streaming services, et cetera. But we also are available for absolutely free if you have a digital antenna. So just rescan your antenna and you'll find our signal and you'll be able to watch our incredible, incredible coverage. Uh, that's it for this week. I need a little bit of rest to get ready for these two big trials. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.